You can be seated. If you had your Bibles open, well, you should have had your heads bowed, so maybe you didn't have your Bibles open, but if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, Psalm 13 as we kick off our uh, summer in the Psalms. It's good to see all of you this morning. Um, I'm not smart enough to play in this, but I feel like uh, Psalm 13 and how it deals and processes uh, with our emotions before God maybe is one of the most fitting uh, Father's Day messages you could preach. Um, It's what it looks like uh, for all of us to openly and honestly uh, live before God. And so we're going to work through Psalm 13, and then we'll just continue to work through some some of the most well-known Psalms um, in all of the book as we uh, work through uh, the summer months together. Real quick, um, if you need coffee, there's some up here uh, to my left and your right. There are a couple bottles of water and some Bibles if you need those, uh, and restrooms are around the corner. In his book, Answering God, the Psalms as Tools for Prayer, Eugene Peterson writes, it is easy to be honest before God with our hallelujahs. It is somewhat more difficult to be honest in our hurts. And it is nearly impossible to be honest before God in the dark emotions of our hate. So we commonly suppress our negative emotions unless neurotically we advertise them. Or when we do express them, we do it far from the presence or what we think is the presence of God, ashamed and embarrassed to be seen in these curse-stained bib overalls. But when we pray the Psalms, these classic prayers of God's people, we find that will not do. We must pray who we actually are, not who we think we should be. Today and for the entirety of our summer in the Psalms, the invitation is open to each of us to come to God as we are. We are not to come as who we wish to be. We are not to come as who others expect us to be. The Psalms only trade in honesty and vulnerability, not pretense and facade. But the stunning truth of the Psalms is this. In our honesty, God does not run away. He does not shrug in indifference or recoil in horror as we may fear. What we find, though, is that he does meet us in our mess. And he works through the pain, the joy, the grief, the celebration, and the sorrow we are facing to remind us of who he is, who we are, what he has done, and what he will do for us. My prayer for us this summer is that we would find freedom, hope, and healing as we live honestly before God. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that the Psalms give voice to often the things that we would hide from you the most. They give voice to displeasure and discomfort and pain and wondering and questioning and suffering. They give voice to the things we find it easy to give voice to, rejoicing and hallelujahs and praise and sweet moments of victory. What the Psalms do, what you prompted these writers to do through the inspiration of the Spirit was to give us a way to put handles on our emotions, not to suppress our emotions or not to think that negative emotions are bad, but to bring all of our emotional being into your presence and allow the presence of you, God, to calm our emotions and allow the truth of your word to provide guardrails to our emotions. Not so that we would be robotic, but so that we would be robust, fully human. Living out the image of God as we go out in the world. But we can only do that, God, as we trust the truth of the Psalms. And it's this, that in our honesty, you meet us. In our humility, you meet us. In our weakness, you meet us. You stand ready to meet with us. Will we honestly and humbly come to you this morning? In Christ's name, 
Amen. David says in Psalm 13, 1 and 2, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David opens Psalm 13, not with a request for God to pull out his calendar so that they can nail down the day his suffering's going to end. David, in this instance, isn't looking for information. He's giving voice to and expressing his own struggles with how much longer he can endure this experience of suffering. As we begin, let me be clear about one thing as it refers to the Psalms. They are theologically accurate. But they are written in such a way that they must be read and engaged differently than a historical book, a gospel, or an epistle. As the ESV Study Bible notes, if Psalms were theological treaties, they would affirm that God will not forget his people and that the abandonment described here is only apparent. But a song whose goal is to describe feelings does not need the same level of precision and attachment as a treaty. Therefore, the groaning cry of David, the repeated question of how long, is a feeling, an experience that transcends the moment he put his pen to paper and resonates with us here in our lives today. For who among us has not cried out how long? How long will the suffering last? How long will the pregnancy test come back negative? How long until the unemployment ends? How long until the prodigal child returns home? How long will the ache of the empty arms be felt? How long will the pain of lost friendships last? How long, O Lord, how long? What David gives voice to is one of the most disorienting realities we face as God's people. Namely, prolonged suffering often brings us to the point where we start to feel as if God has forgotten us at best and rejected us at worst. And as the suffering and trials grind us down, we eventually arrive at the place where what we fear has actually come true, that God has abandoned and neglected us. David wants to know how much longer God is going to delay in his deliverance because he has looked inside himself and found nothing but turmoil and restlessness. He says at the start of verse 2, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David's experiencing the disorienting reality of feeling abandoned and rejected by God. So he turns inward and he begins to go, Well, what can I understand? How do I understand what's happening to me? And he goes before God and he says, how long? Because I've looked as deep inside myself as I possibly can. And I still don't have a way out from this suffering. He is marked in this moment, David, not by the joy of the Lord's anointed, but by the nagging soul sorrow that, we, that accompanies us when we feel that God has left us to ourselves. As James Johnston writes in his commentary on the Psalms, as we ask ourselves why this is happening, we might start dredging up past sins. We know that we are saved by grace, but we wonder whether God has really forgiven us. Maybe he is punishing us for what we did. He has decided to take it out of our hide. Our thoughts become dark and our hearts full of sorrow. And if you've ever lived in a moment of asking how long you've felt this reality, the abandonment and the felt rejection by God, even though not true, they're deeply real feelings we experience. Sitting with that long enough and looking inside ourselves long enough, we begin to go, well, maybe I'm really not one of God's. 
maybe I've fancied myself a member of the family and I've never really been adopted. Maybe Jesus missed a few of my sins on the cross. And so I'm bearing the brunt of that punishment now. We miss the beauty of Paul's writing in Romans that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It sure feels like in the how long moments that there's condemnation that got left over. David says, what is going on, Lord? How long? And the last step down the ladder of despondency in these first two verses is taken when David asks the Lord how long his enemy will be exalted over him. Someone, and we're not sure who, has set themselves up as David's adversary. Most commentators tend to think that this is when Absalom, his son, was pursuing him and trying to take the kingdom from David. You could imagine the sting and the pinch that David feels if you think about one of your own sons out for your life. And that's the enemy that has set themselves up over you to gloat over you. But David is faithfully persevering in his suffering. And as he does so, the enemy grows more and more agitated. And the enemy allows his hatred for David's faithfulness to lead him to gloat over his misfortunes. Thus, David asks, how long someone who hates the God whom David trusts and follows, even in the midst of suffering, is going to be allowed to rejoice over his present state? If you live with any honesty for any amount of time, and you follow Jesus for any length of time, you've felt Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. You've experienced this disorienting reality of where is God in all of this? And when you hit rock bottom in these moments, it's not fun. It's not pleasant. And often it is out of nowhere that we find ourselves here. In the summer of 2003, I went across the country to serve on summer project with crew in Santa Cruz. And we took 10 days, me and two other guys from App took 10 days and drove across the country. And one of our last stops was at the Grand Canyon. And we had slept on the side of the road the night before. When we got up the next morning, we went in, and we were like, man, let's just go see what this is all about. So we'd like driven up to the rim of the canyon, looked out. I was like, man, this is great. Let's go. And the two guys I were with was like, no, 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 no. We may never get a chance to come back here. We're going to go to the bottom today. I was like, why? This is the dumbest thing we've ever done. So we park at the visitor center. We ride in the bus over to where they drop you off where you can grab the different trailheads. Bright Angel Trailhead is the one that takes you four and a half miles straight down to the floor of the canyon. As we were looking, there are signs posted everywhere. Don't start your hike too late in the day. Make sure you have plenty of water. Make plans to sleep overnight so that you can recover. Get all these things. And on the little map they had, there was this warning. If you need to be airlifted out, it is a $10,000 helicopter ride when they have to come get you. So we're like, well, we got a couple of now jeans and some stupidity. Let's do it. <laughs> Four and a half miles straight down. Absolutely gorgeous. Stunning. Every turn around the corner of the canyon wall opened up new vistas of beauty. I mean, it was just mind-numbing. The only thing you had to watch was where the donkeys had peed and pooped. But other than that, and it smelled terrible in the sun, other than that, I mean, it was gorgeous. Who wouldn't want to go all the way down to the bottom of the canyon floor? And then we got to the bottom of the canyon floor, and then reality set in. We got to get out of here. 
and I don't have 10 grand in the bank account to ferry us out on a helicopter. What we begin to realize was this. It had been beautiful coming down. But it was going to be hard to get back out. And the only way for us to get back out was to put one foot in front of the other. The same trail that had brought us down was the same trail that would bring us out. And it became a matter of, well, I just put one foot in front of the other. And step by step, one foot in front of the other, we completed the four and a half miles back out. And when my feet hit the top of the Grand Canyon rim, I turned to the two guys I was with and I said, I don't care how much money it costs, we're staying in a hotel tonight. I'm not sleeping in the car or on the ground, and I prefer we find one with a hot tub. I hurt all over. <laughs> the reality for us is this. When we find ourselves at the bottom, what David does, David doesn't say, well, then just sit here and wallow in your pity. He doesn't say, well, you have earned the right to just now allow yourselves to be left here. David in verses 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 turns us around and shows us how we begin to put one foot in front of the other with our faith and walk back up and out from the floor of despondency where we cry out how long. And let me tell you something, the walk down, breezy. The walk out felt like it was going to take forever. And that is often the case with us. It takes an instant to be in a how long moment, and it feels like it takes forever to get out of it. And they last often longer than we wish them to. The question for us, and that David's going to answer is, what do you do when it takes forever? What do you do when your how long moment isn't just a brief prayer? How do you continue to put one foot in front of the other? David begins to answer it in Psalm 13, verses 3 and 4. This is the hinge point of the psalm when David writes, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Notice what David doesn't do that we're prone to do. David's acknowledging the fullness of what he's feeling. If we were writing Psalm 13, perhaps this is where we would turn and chastise ourselves for feeling this way. David doesn't. David doesn't reprimand himself for feeling abandoned and neglected. David doesn't, David doesn't punish himself and he calls on his own head by saying, David, how dumb of you to feel this way. He continues to process what he's feeling, but in the presence of God. He does two things that perhaps cause us more discomfort than we would initially acknowledge. Because we love doctrine and hate our emotions a lot of the times. We love the cold, sterile truth that we can read and apply faithfully to everyone else's life, leaving our emotions detached. But we struggle to rightly process our emotions in the presence of God. Especially the negative emotions, like Eugene Peterson says. Notice what David does. First, he calls out to the God who seems distant in prayer. David doesn't stamp his feet and throw a tantrum because he feels as if he's being ignored. If you've been around a niece, a nephew, or your own kids, if they come up to you and they call your name and you're busy and you don't immediately acknowledge them, it escalates from dad, dad, mom, mom, nana, nana, whoever they want. It quickly escalates from a polite asking to a tantrum. Answer me! Put your phone down! 
Mom, Dad! That's not what David does. He doesn't allow the distance of God to leave, lead him to a tantrum. David turns to God in prayer because he knows that God, no matter how distant God may feel from David, is the only one who can deliver him. David is working through the reality of this. He knows that God is not going to leave him or forsake him. He knows that he is God's anointed. He understands all about what God has said would be true for him. He understands it. But he doesn't allow that to trump or overwhelm the reality of the emotions he feels. And so as he's processing all of these emotions, he holds them in balance. And he says, I feel this way, but who else would I go to? Who else would hear? Who else would be able to deliver me? David's praying this at the point where all other options for deliverance have been exhausted. There's only one other place to go, and it's to cry out to the very God who feels so distant. But if we are honest, most of the time for us, and this is where David serves as a corrective in 3 and 4, most of the time for us, when God feels distant in our lives, we do not see it as an invitation to draw nearer still. We see the perceived distance of God as an invitation to indulge in every sinful desire we've pushed aside when God felt near. But David turns to God and prays in such a way that the focus is primarily on God's glory, not just David having his happiness restored. David offers a corrective for us because when God seems distant, when we've cried out how long until we don't have any how longs left, and we can't deliver ourselves, and nothing else seems to be working, and God seems to be preoccupied, we often find that as the mounting pressure of the suffering builds, we need an escape, and so we turn to the very sin that would further enslave us. And David says, God, you've got to act. You've got to be the one who considers and answers me. Light up my eyes, he says. Give me life, lest I sleep the sleep of death. The second thing David does that perhaps make us uncomfortable is this. David has the audacity to remind God that if he falls, meaning David, it will be God who is on the hook for not fulfilling his promises. Psalm 13 is not a psalm of confession and repentance. David isn't saying, deliver me from my sins. David's saying, deliver me from my suffering. And he says, if you don't deliver me, if you don't deliver me, it's your character, God, that's on the line. You're the one who's got to stand up before the watching world and go, yeah, I couldn't fulfill my promises to my anointed one. And if we're honest, that makes us really uncomfortable to walk into the presence of God and remind him of what he's promised us. James Johnson, again, is helpful when he writes, David subtly reminds God that if he fell, God would default on his promises. The enemy would see that God had not been faithful to keep his word, so God's character is on the line. God had committed himself to David, and David prayed on the basis of those promises. David's praying on the basis of the promises God has already made to him ensures that David is asking God to move in a way that first and foremost magnifies God's own glory. Therefore, when we pray in the midst of our how long, we need to pray back to God the promises he has made to us. For in each promise of God to us, there is the guarantee of his glory being showcased and our good being met. 
This is why it is an indispensable reality for us as believers to know the fullness of the Scriptures. You can't pray the promises of God back to Him concerning your life if you don't know them. And we would all do well to recover a view of the Scriptures where it's not primarily information we're going to glean, but it primarily serves as a prompt for us to begin to engage in a conversation with God in prayer about the truth that we are reading and understanding. And so David says, God, you've, you've, you've promised it. I didn't, I didn't go get the oil out of Samuel's hand and pour it on my own head. I was content to watch the sheep for crying out loud. You're the one who sent for me from the sheep pen to come be anointed. You're the one who has promised through Samuel that I'll have someone sit on the throne of my kingdom forever. They said, I didn't dream this up in a fevered dream. You've done it. Now you live up to your promises. Fulfill your promises. How much greater are, is the surety of the promises God has made to us because of the finished work of Jesus? But we have to know them to pray them in our how long moments. And so we have to be soaking ourselves in the scriptures. Lastly, David prays this prayer with his eye on the presence of the enemy in his life. He understands and knows that this physical enemy is bent on his destruction. And there may be times in life where we have actual real-life flesh-and-blood enemies who are gloating over and rejoicing over us as we seem to struggle and be subjected to suffering in our following God. But there's also the reality over the physical reality, which is the spiritual reality, that we do have an enemy of our souls. One who does like to come to us in our moments of how long and go, just give it up. Just walk away. All those promises, not for you, bud. Get out while you can. Why don't you come over here to my kingdom and live this way? You want life? I'll give you life. The enemy gloats over us in such a way as to diminish God's glory and increase the appeal of sin. And it is never more felt or more pronounced than when we're in the midst of our sufferings. David says, the enemy's here. He's gloating. God, are you going to act? Dr. Howard Hendricks writes, when you're doing what Jesus Christ has called you to do, which is what David was doing, you can count on two things. You can stake your life on it. One, you will possess spiritual power because you have the presence of Christ. Two, you'll experience opposition because the devil does not concentrate on secondary targets. He never majors on the minor. If we're not careful, we can so overstate. Think about it the wording of this carefully. I have it down. We can so overstate the victory that Jesus has won for us that we can minimize or deny the presence of the, of the enemy at work in the world today. Jesus has fully conquered and fully defeated Satan. Yes. But we can lean so far into that that we lose sight that we do have an enemy that pursues us. We have an enemy that is bent on our destruction. We have an enemy that would like nothing more than to gloat over us, giving in to sin when we should be reaching out to God. The enemy knows he can't take us from the Father's hand. But the enemy knows that if he can get to us even in our suffering, he can make the Father look bad through our actions. And so when you go and you do the things that God has called you to do, don't be surprised when the enemy comes for you. 
We're not somehow protected from his schemes and his plans. All of the New Testament letters are written to groups of believers. And in almost every one, there is a warning to keep guard on and watch for the enemy. But oftentimes we struggle with this. And I was writing this, I was thinking about that wonderful um, British chef Gordon Ramsay. And I think if you've watched the show or you've dabbled in memes and gifs on the internet, you know where this is headed. On the show one time, there was this interaction with the chef, and Gordon Ramsay takes two slices of bread, and he puts them on either ear of the contestant, and he makes them say, you're an idiot sandwich. He makes them repeat that. They have to say it to him like, I'm an idiot sandwich. Because they had transgressed, they had overstepped the bounds of understanding what he was asking. Oftentimes, the reason we struggle to go to God and remind him of his promises to us and remind him to fulfill his promises as a means to display the fullness of his character is we feel like God's going to grab two proverbial slices of bread, slap them on our head, and call us an idiot for reminding him of what he's already said. God never tires of his children reminding him of what he's promised. You cannot transgress the bounds of his grace and mercy if you've been adopted in Jesus. Go to him in grace, in humility, reminding him of all the promises he's made to you. He never, ever, ever tires of hearing it. He's never forgotten it. This isn't if God somehow forgot all that he had told David or that when we come to him, he would forget all that he's promised to us. Have you ever promised a kid something and then sent them to bed? What's the first thing they do when they wake up in the morning? They ask you if you're getting what they promised. Just what you think, man, they'll go to bed, they'll forget this. I'm off the hook. We don't got to do ice cream tonight. First time you wake your kids up next morning, what are they asking for? The very thing you promised them the night before. They haven't forgot it. They slept on it. And they woke up convinced that you had promised it, so you're going to do it. And as a parent, you never get tired of your kids. Now, sometimes we promise things we have no business promising, and we have to go back on our word. God never does. God never is like, I really wish that they would not ask me that again. Or God's never going to go, well, i got to go back on that promise. Like, I can't actually do that today, guys. Sorry about that. I don't have any grace for you today. Come back. No, God loves to hear from his children. So we go and we remind him. The psalm closes in verses 5 and 6 with a renewed vantage point that can only be appreciated once you've experienced the depths of feeling that David expressed in the opening. He says in 13, 5 and 6, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. How in the world does David arrive at this renewed vantage point? when he's not out of his how long moment yet. We read this and we think that by the time we get to five and six, David is out of his how long moment. He's still firmly in the middle of it. He hasn't been removed from his suffering. He hasn't been elevated out of it. He's in the middle of it, but by the time we get to verses five and six, a whole perspective change has happened. Even in the midst of the how long. 
He gets here by anchoring himself in the remembrance of the past faithfulness of God as he looks forward to the future deliverance that while not yet there yet will surely arrive because of the character of the God in whom he trusts. Trust, grounded in the concrete actions of God in the past, is the fertile soil where future-looking hope grows. Trust, born by remembering the past actions of God, is the fertile soil in our hearts and in our lives where future-looking hope grows. And that's what David is doing. And David highlights three realities that ground him in the truth that would build his trust so that he would look forward in hope. And if we are going to persevere like David, we'll do well to commit the grounding of our hearts and minds to these truths. First, he says this, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. The steadfast love of God is rooted in God's promises to his people in the covenant. The Hebrew word hesed that is used is one of the richest ways to describe this love. Barry Cooper writes, Having entered a covenant relationship with his people, God binds himself to act toward them with hesed, and he is utterly faithful to his own self-commitment. To put it another way, our hope that God will love us to the uttermost and forever is not founded on our ability to keep his commands, but rather it's founded on God's ability to keep being God. David says, I've trusted in your steadfast love. I'm trusting in your ability to keep being who you are. You are going to remain committed to yourself. As my emotions ebb and flow, as my experiences of you ebb and flow, as my leaning into the truth ebbs and flows, the one thing that's not going to ebb and flow is the consistency and the constancy of your love because you've promised it. And if you ever default on it, you will have stopped being God. He says, you be God and I will rest in that. And that is hard to do in the midst of a how long moment hard to do in a season of asking how long because we feel in those moments as if God has really stopped being our God they said no 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 I know your steadfast love I'm not going to let it go and even when it makes no sense to anyone else I'm going to rest there secondly David looks forward to rejoicing in the salvation that God would bring he says at the end of five my heart shall rejoice in your salvation this isn't a salvation that David, go, David is going to work for himself. Rather, it will be the gracious act of God working in his life to deliver him from both physical and spiritual danger. But there's also the forward-looking faith of David that hoped in the salvation that was on the far horizon, the salvation that will be delivered by the Messiah who would come from his line. We can pray for both types of salvation still today. We pray for deliverance. We pray for being rescued from pain and sickness and suffering. We pray for immediate relief from physical and spiritual danger. That's still a valid salvation prayer to pray today. But we also pray looking forward to the day when Christ returns. And he renews all things and he restores all things. And Satan and sin and death are gone and tears are gone and sickness is gone. And all those things pass away. We look forward to that as well. But we can also pray in the moment for God's immediate work in our life to remove suffering from our lives. 
We love to talk about how, and it is true, God does some of his best work in our sufferings. That doesn't mean that you can't pray for God to take the suffering. We acknowledge that God gets our attention the best. As C.S. Lewis would say, suffering is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. We understand that. This is not a call to some masochistic self-martyrdom where you never pray for God to relieve you of your suffering and your problems. None of us would respond to kids that are in need of help by going, well, stay there, kid. I know you're bobbing in the water and you don't know how to swim. You'll figure it out. We would jump in to rescue them because we know that if we don't, they're not going to be able to save themselves. We don't make them linger in their suffering to try to teach them a lesson. We intervene to rescue them. God still stands today to intervene to rescue us. Yes, he's done all for our salvation that is needed in Jesus. But that should not dampen or diminish our prayers for salvation when suffering has overwhelmed us. He's a good, loving father. Go to him. And lastly, David trusts and looks forward to God's ongoing, lavish provision in his life. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That is stunning. Bountifully? You're in the midst of a how long? You just feel like he knows where you are in the world. And yet you're trusting that he's going to deal bountifully with you? And man, we view God as some weird cross between Scrooge McDuck and Ebenezer Scrooge. Like on the one point, he's like the fun grandpa who will take you on trips like Scrooge McDuck. But on the other hand, man, he is just a miser who doesn't want to let anything extra go that he doesn't have to let go. David says, that's a foreign view of God to me. He says, I'm going to sing to you now because I know that you're going to deal bountifully or lavishly with me in the future. David knew that God wouldn't deliver and then discard him. Rather, he knew that God would continue to completely meet any and every need David had as he generously poured out his provision day by day. Derek Kidner notes that the translation to English from Hebrew leaves room for God's giving to exceed man's asking. David says, still bountifully with me. And Kendra says, when you translate that, it actually opens up the possibility that God's going to surpass even what you're asking for. But God is a good God, a loving Father. He's never going to run out of whatever we're asking for. He's got it. He's got it in abundance, and he's got it eternally. You cannot exercise it all out of him. You cannot make too many requests. In the midst of our how-long moments... When God and his provision feels scarce, we must remind ourselves he always deals lavishly with us. And we have the more certain view of his lavishness towards us in the cross. He's talking about dealing bountifully with us. It's Jesus on the cross where all the blood was spilled, where all the life was taken. There is no way for him to deal more bountifully with us than he did with Jesus. And yet, he still today wants to meet you and do and deal with you lavishly in your own life. That doesn't mean you're all driving Teslas here next week. This isn't tied to our economic standing or our home situation, our ability to, for housing or clothing. 
It's the promise that God will provide what we need to faithfully follow him, whatever comes our way, even in the midst of our how long moments. And when you linger in the how long, long enough, you find a hunger and a desire to ask God for more and more of himself. That's what David says, you're going to deal lavishly with me. When we rightly understand the steadfast love of God and his gracious salvation and abundant care for us, we respond with worship, even in the middle of our how long moments. Because worship is bound up in recognizing and responding to the character of God, even in the midst of daunting and unwanted circumstances. Therefore, Worship can be tinged with tears of sorrow or joy. Worship can be filled with groans too deep for words or resounding hallelujahs. Worship can look a myriad of ways and take place in a myriad of circumstances and emotional states. But worship will always center on the declaration of the goodness of God's character, the sustaining power of his grace, the reality of his covenant love, and the beauty of his glory to mention but a few. David says, I'm still here. The how long hasn't left me yet. But he ends it on a note of praise. And for us, often, that's the hardest thing as we navigate life in these how long moments. It's hard to bring ourselves to worship because we have perceived worship as this smiling, happy experience where we're acknowledging that everything's right with us. The Psalms say worship actually includes when you feel in the dumps and you feel like God has abandoned you and you don't have anything you can say out loud. Or the only thing you can say out loud are questions and frustrations and anger with how God is acting. Psalms say bring it to him. Honestly, confess who God is, even in the midst of all that you're feeling. And that's worship whether your eyes are filled with tears of joy or sorrow, whether your heart is broken or your heart is whole, however it is, we continue to come to God faithfully confessing who he is, the reality and the truth of his character and his love and his grace. And we watch God work in the midst of that to make us more and more and more like Jesus every day. James Johnson writes, if you're a Christian and you feel like God has abandoned you, I can't tell you when the emotional darkness will lift, but I can tell you that you are not alone. You are following the footsteps of godly men and women who have gone before you. David felt abandoned by God. Our Lord Jesus truly was forsaken by God. When the clouds lift and the light shines on you again, you will see his face. And you will know that he has been right beside you all along. You need to hope in him. His promises are true. His word is sure. And he will save you. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful this morning for the truth of Psalm 13. It's a truth that reminds us that we don't have to suppress our negative emotions. We don't have to pretend like we don't have bad days. And we don't have to pretend like our suffering is over in an instant. But we can continue to faithfully process and trust our emotions in light of your character and your presence with us, even when you feel distant and far. And so we lean into the words of Jesus that tell us, he told us, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. When the light of our eyes are restored, when we look around as we come out of our suffering, we realize, even though it may feel different in the moment, we realize you've never left us. You've never forsaken us. 
You were there with us the whole way. Watching over, guarding, caring for, carrying us. But God, we must be faithful even in our how long moments to not only give voice to the frustrations and the pains and asking the how long questions. But God, we also must be those who pray. Who pray faithfully, reminding you of the promises you've made to us. We must be those who rest our hearts in your steadfast love, your salvation, and your abundant provision for us. God, so this morning, if there's anyone here crying how long, pray that you would remind them that you're with them. For those who are coming out of their how long moments, God, I pray that they would find their voices lifted in worship to you. And for those who are out of their how long moment and perhaps staring another how long moment in the face, God, we pray that you would walk with us, that we would use these moments of reprieve and rest when you deal bountifully with us, not to become lazy, but to give ourselves fully to knowing you and loving you and trusting you. As we journey with you in this broken world towards the promise of eternal life and redemption and renewal. In Jesus' name, amen.